You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. So our guest today is a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at North Carolina State University. She's also a research cur- curator for paleontology at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Her research interests include molecular paleontology, specifically the preservation and detection of original molecular fragments and well-preserved fossil specimens. In 2005, she and her team shook the paleontology community when they reported finding soft tissue preserved in a 68-million-year-old T-Rex femur. Since that initial find, her team has unearthed mounting evidence that soft tissue such as blood vessels, collagen, and other proteins can survive more than 66 million years of degradation. Fun fact, on one of her fossil hunts, she spent three days in the field walking around on a broken leg because she didn't want to miss out on anything. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Mary Schweitzer to the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hooray. Anyone who will come on and geek out about dinosaurs is welcome here anytime. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, Mary, again, you know, thank you for joining us. And I just kind of wanted to start, um, if you can just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in studying paleontology, because I think your story is, is fascinating. Well, back in the olden days, before there was internet and barely TV, (laughs) my brother, who is quite a bit older than I, uh, left for college. So we all grew up in Helena, Montana, and it's not very big now, but it was a lot smaller back then. And uh, he taught me how to read before he left. So I was five when he left. And to keep me reading, he would send me back books from the big city in Washington, D.C., Two of those books were one called, it's a little golden book, Roy Chapman Andrews and the Dinosaurs of the Flaming Cliffs. And the other one was a book I still have, still love, and just read not too long ago again. It's called The Enormous Egg. And when he came home that first Christmas, I told him and all of his friends I was going to be a paleontologist when I grew up, age five. (laughs) So um, that dream sort of got Uh, buried under real life circumstances until I was the mom of three and I had the opportunity to take a class from Jack Horner. And my extreme love for dinosaurs in the past was rekindled and the rest is history, as they say. Well, so I, um, if you don't mind me asking, yeah, and one of the things uh, that I read about you uh, when you took that class Something I read is that uh, you walked up to Jack Horner and introduced yourself and said something along the lines of, I'm a creationist, I'm going to disprove you. And he he responded in kind, saying, I'm an atheist. (laughs) And then it kind of, based on what I read, it's like the relationship started. You got into the class and that's kind of how you introduced yourself to him. Was that accurate or... Yeah, sort of. I I went uh, up to him after his first lecture, and I said, "I'm a I'm a young Earth creationist, and I want to convince you that you're wrong about evolution." And he said, "I'm an atheist. Have a seat." <laughs> and I did, and it 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 sort of it was an interesting journey. Let's just yeah. put it that way. Like it opened my eyes to so many things that I had not thought about before because a lot of um, Christian teachers and pastors don't address why 
scientists say what they say about evolution in the age of the earth. It's just like, well, they're wrong. Or evolutionist mm. is what I've heard. Right. Right. But evolutionist? Evolutionist, yes. Oh, how have I lived my whole life in evangelical <laughs> circles and never heard that <laughs> word? It's, I feel like I missed I, out. It's out there. And, um, you know, I, I truly believe that God gives us his fingerprints to follow and he does not mislead. That is not a characteristic of God. He cannot. So if he uses astronomy, paleontology, physics, um, genetics, sedimentology, and geology, and they all point to an ancient earth, billions of years old. Is he going to slap our hands if we say the world is 4.6 billion years old and it really isn't? No, because he doesn't mislead, and that's what the data say. So as a scientist, I do not have beliefs. I have only data. And my job as a scientist is not to prove anything. And that takes you down a very unhealthy track if you set out trying to prove an agenda because science is agenda free. And so the job of a true scientist, I believe, is to disprove. And that is how I approach my work. I think those things look an awful lot like vessels and cells, but that's not my job. My job is to say, what else could they be and disprove? And I have, that's how I approach the science. Yeah, that's an ancient way of approaching Christianity as well, mm -hmm. right? The via, ne the via negativa. The, uh, it's easier to say the things that we don't know or the things that aren't true about God than it is to enter into the eternal and try to list off all the things that are true about God. And hmm. yeah, that, I, I love that. I love that mentality. Yeah. Um, is that, is that the sort of, uh, mindset that would possess you to throw acid onto a dinosaur bone? <laughs> Um, all of the stuff that I have done comes about by accident. I have not, <laughs> I certainly did not set out to show that there were soft tissues and dinosaurs because everybody knows that's not possible. So, um, you know, that wasn't my agenda at all. But we found what looked like common bony reproductive tissue that's found in modern birds. And so I looked at all the the stories, the, the publications about medullary bone. And I thought, okay, so if this is how modern scientists look at it in birds, I'm going to try the same thing with my dinosaurs. And, um, well, everything else just sort of popped out. Instead of, you know, the prediction would be, well, all organics in dinosaur bone have been replaced with mineral and so if you are stupid enough to dissolve a dinosaur bone, you shouldn't have anything left, right? <laughs> but right. we did. <laughs> and that was, I mean, I had six months where every morning I went into the lab was like Christmas. It was mm. surprise after surprise. And I was scared to death to talk about this. And so I sat on it for a long time repeating those experiments over and over and over to make sure it wasn't just some kind of accident or fluke. And, you know, the study actually grew from that. Just like, this can't be, so what else is it? And mm. I haven't really been able to disprove that those are vessels or cells. 
Right. They could. Mm. They could be something else, but I haven't found it yet. So. Hmm. Well, maybe we could take a second um, for those listening at home, and you could explain a little bit about what fossilization is. Um, what is? What are we finding? What are the the fossils made out of? And how does that process work? And then, um, what it is that you found back in what 2005? Well. We don't know what fossilization is. <laughs> we have guesses. Oh. <laughs> we have a lot of guesses, and we teach it as if it is confirmed. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. You know, the standard conventional wisdom is you have a dinosaur, and it's walking across ancient sediments, and it dies in just exactly the right place to get buried really, really fast so that scavengers can't come and degrade it. And after it's buried then, you know, microbes go to work and geochemical factors and eventually all the organics in a bone are degraded and replaced with exogenous or outer foreign mineral that comes from the environment. And so that leads to the prediction that dinosaur bone basically turns into rock, sort of, kind of. Mm. But we've always known that that wasn't a full picture for how fossilization occurred because we have microscopic integrity, meaning that dinosaur bone under the microscope looks like modern bone. It still has hmm. all of the microstructure that you would find in modern bone. And so the, the uh, scenario we teach for fossilization doesn't come across explaining everything. And the more that we look at fossils and find Weird stuff, like we've got a Cetaxosaurus out of China that's, that this is what we call a parrot-beaked dinosaur. It's preserved with skin. It's got evidence for countershading. It's got evidence for internal gut contents, wow. melanin pigments in the eye, and quills on its tail. Whoa. And the standard scenario does not explain that. So... Bone, and this is where I start out, modern bone, no matter what you're looking at, whether it's a lizard or a snake or a fish, it's made of the protein, collagen, and mineral. If you didn't have the mineral part, you'd be a blob sitting in your chair with nothing to provide resistance to your muscles. If you didn't have the protein part, you could break your bones standing up from your chair. Hmm. So both are needed. You can do this in your home if you take a chicken bone, chicken leg, for example, and you put it in a jar of vinegar and you wait a couple of weeks. You can tie it into a knot. We've removed the mineral with the acid, leaving only the organics. Now, if you take that same chicken bone and put it in a very low oven so that it doesn't do, it doesn't bake completely and let it go at maybe 50, 60, 70, 80 degrees, for three or four days, you pull it out. It doesn't look any different, but you can snap it with your fingers. Hmm. And if you take a chicken bone that has both the protein and the mineral, you can't break it with a hammer. It takes a lot of force. Hmm. And so if you take a dinosaur bone and you put it in an acid, and our, our scenario is true and we don't all the organics are gone, when I put it in the acid, there shouldn't be anything left. But there is. And it's so when there's something left that looks like collagen or that looks like blood vessels, then you got to figure out, OK, what else could it be? 
So you said that when you first, you know, found this or made these discoveries that you were terrified and you kind of sat on it for a while. What, what, so what was the process like for you then? Cause I, I think that part's really interesting. So what did you do? I guess. Um, well, conventional wisdom and the wisdom of all, all of science says that proteins can't last that long. In fact, I had a reviewer for one of my papers say, if you're right, why do we need refrigerators? And I'm like, mm. um, well, <laughs> I can't answer that <laughs> question for you. But yeah. um, So it is flying in the face of everything that has governed paleontology studies over time. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to. I still don't. And um, <laughs> I have had another critic say, well, if, if what she's doing is real, how come she's the only one doing it? And I'm like, mm. I can't really make other people follow this path. Uh, it's not my decision. And I can answer that now by saying that there are an awful lot of people doing it right now. And we've learned an enormous amount um, by challenging that central assumption that proteins can't survive tissues can't survive hmm. but yeah I, I was scared because i didn't want to go against conventionalism i mean i'm i'm really not very smart and there are a lot of super smart people out there who are telling me that this can't be done and hmm. who am i i mean good heavens i didn't want to challenge that wow well, that'll preach <laughs> <laughs> who am I? Who am I to go against conventional wisdom when all of the experts are telling me otherwise? Yeah, who am I? I can't. To go up against that giant. <laughs> I'm not. I'm glad you did. Well, I am too. It's been it's been pretty exciting, like I said. So. so so what kinds of things can we learn about the individual dinosaurs by looking at their what's left of this this tissue? Um, well, I I I don't know. That's kind of what we're in the process of trying to figure out. Um, I, I have to say that the morphological evidence, the shape, the mi microstructure, those, those things are informative, but you can do that on other bone tissues. So hmm. um, the methods that we use are still pretty controversial. And in order to get anything that is acceptable, I need to get sequence data. And that's mm. hard because you're looking at altered molecules, tiny little fragments, and there's nothing in the databases really to compare it with. So what we have to do is say, yeah, we have, we have sequences, but maybe they're contaminant. That's what some of the critics have said when we came out with our sequencing papers. And mm. A lot of that has to do with how the database algorithms work. If it's in there, it will match it. So if there's already previously birds in there, it matches our dinosaurs to birds or whatever. But if it matches too closely to birds, then it's obviously a bird contaminant and can't be dinosaurian. So hmm. um, we, we're in the process of trying to develop some new methods, but... I, I don't know yet what we can learn. I have ideas, but I don't, um, they're pretty much awfully speculative. 
Yeah. So I mean, when you say sequencing, you're not talking about DNA, are you? No, I'm talking about proteins. I don't work on okay. DNA. I think that I, I think that we have evidence that DNA can preserve inside these cells, um, but I don't have any interest at all in going there. I'll leave that okay. to some of my other very DNA proficient colleagues if they yeah. ever want to do that. Yeah. I have also seen Jurassic Park and have have no desire <laughs> to go down that route. So, um, how has you know I referred to in the your bio about the publication in two thousand five, right? Mm-hmm. In that work and some discoveries since. So, you talked about you know initially you know the amount of criticism you faced from the scientific community, um, but that others are kind of finding things. Now, so I guess, can you kind of describe to us or explain since that first landmark study was published, like what are the other things that you have been finding? If that makes that sense. That I've been finding? Or yeah, that and then others help. as well. Like how has the, how has the field advanced? I guess. Um, hmm. Well, one of my uh, colleagues I work with quite often from Sweden has found um, he kind of concentrates on melanosomes and countershading and how these animals existed in their environment using color. And so he's been able to identify, he's been able to identify using um, certain really, really sensitive high-tech methods, the presence of melanin. Um, I, I think that's really interesting and I trust his data. There's a lot of stuff out there that I don't trust, but um, you know, having color, having pigments preserved, we've been able to demonstrate the preservation of heme, which is the molecule that gives your blood its color and is incorporated into hemoglobin. And I think that if we could get just the right area to sequence, we might be able to answer with sequence are these animals warm-blooded? And if they are warm-blooded, then we have a whole host of questions that we can ask on that. So I think that, you know, looking at these tissues, figuring out, you know, it's important to figure out how they might be preserved. What is the chemistry behind preserving a molecule for 80 million years? That's important because there's an awful lot of things we can do with a flexible polymer that lasts 80 million years if we can figure out how it happened and understanding how it happened, how these things are preserved, um, also will help us to untie those knots and maybe get at more functional aspects. I always thought that uh, warm-bloodedness was an adaptation to a colder climate. Why would uh, dinosaurs need warm blood? Why would you think it's an adaptation for cold climate? Um, because uh, <laughs> cold-blooded creatures, you know, live in hotter climates and yes. don't need to be self-regulating their internal self. Am I completely off base? Um, I think I am. <laughs> no, you're not off base, but there's... There's a lot of other reasons you might want to elevate your metabolic rates. First of all, to open niches that reduce your competition. 
So if you are slightly endothermic, say your metabolic rate is 20% higher than your average crocodile, there you can stay active longer. You can go, uh, you can um, migrate further and you can open yourself to new niches. And mm. so um, the other thing that we see in certain lineages of dinosaurs is they become smaller over time, not bigger. And if you are right. smaller over time, your surface area to volume ratio is not favorable for retaining heat. So you have to generate heat just because you're small, just to keep your activity levels going. And so um, another reason for uh, elevated metabolic rate is just because you're little, which also mm. might explain why certain endo, uh integumentary structures may have formed like feathers or like hair. We only see feathers and hair on warm-blooded animals today. Mm. And we see them in the fossil record on certain lineages of dinosaurs, on birds in the fossil record. Um, we see hair on certain organisms if they're preserved well enough. And they're always, they always have the mammal type of skeleton, not the dinosaur type of skeleton. So if it's true today that only warm-blooded animals have these structures, can that apply to the past? Hmm. I suppose so. Is it, um, I mean, you've talked about dinosaurs and birds and I, you know, from what I understand within the scientific community that that's, it's kind of generally accepted that there is that lineage there, that connection instead yes. of to reptiles, but is there, are there still members of the paleontology community where they disagree? I mean, is it still up for debate, I guess? I mean, from what I understand, it's not, but I'm just curious within that, your community, are there still those who just say, nope, it's just not, there's no connection to birds? There are some still who do. I think the evidence, just like the evidence for an ancient earth, I think the evidence that birds are a type of dinosaur is pretty overwhelming and there's okay. no evidence against that, none. So, um, you know, for me, I go with data and the data right now says that birds are a type of dinosaur and that's, that's how I frame my questions. Okay. Yeah, it's just because uh, I was again reading some of you know things about your work. I did see a little bit of that because I you know I understand how you have faced criticism within the community, um, especially initially. Uh, what was it uh, like? You know, for you? Go ahead. It's interesting that when we published our first paper in two thousand five on soft tissues, we did not present any molecular data, and we didn't get a lot of pushback. And then when we published our first sequence paper in 2007, that's when the criticism came roaring to the surface. So, um, okay. So it was just, okay, you know, these are really cool pictures. But, huh. um, and, and, you know, they were pictures, so nobody could really say anything about it until we started saying, you know what, these things have original molecules. And that is what challenges everything. And so... That's, and the criticism exists today, and a lot of it is um, what I would expect from my colleagues. We're paid to be skeptical, and pretty pictures should not convince anybody of anything. And I said that at the time. It's very cool, and I have, you know, I can't, 
prove they're not blood vessels. They sure look like them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we continue uh, to ask those questions to this day. You know, we're still running tests on blood vessels, and we have different questions now than we did back then. But um, they, the data are still, you know, still being produced and building a case for these things being original to the dinosaur. But you're just like <clears throat> with dinosaurs being, I mean, birds being a type of dinosaur, there's always going to be other people who question and challenge And that is the job of my colleagues. And I thank them for holding me accountable because I want to be the best scientist I know how to be. And that means never, never, never overstating my data. But if I have data that supports a certain viewpoint, then I need to be honest and upfront about that as well. So, Hmm. Interesting. Zach, you look lost in thought. No, I'm just, I'm just taking it all yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've, you're continuing to, to do this with different fossils oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, I'm yeah. excited about that part. <laughs> so can you tell us more about that? Like, no. what, what else have you done it with? <laughs> <laughs> you say no. I can't tell you until we publish it. Okay. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. That just threw me off. Sorry. <laughs> She says that we have very exciting news with all kinds of other things, but you just are going to have to wait. Sorry. So I I did read somewhere too, you know, that it's not possible for you to go to, you know, a museum and find, uh, you know, a dinosaur fossil in a museum display for people to see and get the same information out of that. Well, we're working on that. That That is something that we continue to test as well. But, you know, my thought from the first stuff that I said uh, that we discovered this in was it was fresh out of the field. We dug it up and started mm-hmm. looking at this stuff right away. And <clears throat> when you think about physics, these guys are in equilibrium with their environment. When you change their environment by digging them up and exposing them to 21st century oxygen content and atmospheric Mm -hmm. stuff and pollution and graduate student sweat and, you know, whatever, (laughs) they begin to change. So it's like they've been in hibernation and then all of a sudden they wake up and everything progresses as it would have. They degrade. And we've got evidence that once it's out of the ground, it it. begins to degrade, which is why we store our stuff in a special manner. So if you have a fossil that's been on display, being exposed to oxygen and people's carbon dioxide exhalations and air conditioning or lack thereof, it makes sense to me that that would not be a prime candidate for the kind of work that I do. And it is extremely expensive to do this and time-consuming and takes up a lot of resources. And I'm not going to waste those looking at fossils that I think are less than ideal. Now, we have recovered this kind of material from museum-based fossils. So I'm not going to say that we can't do it, but it's not, you know, I'm lucky enough that I can work on the stuff I find interesting And so whether it's present in ancient humans, Neanderthals, whatever, or whether it's present in woolly mammoths, yeah, that's cool. But 
That doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. I love my dinosaurs and that's what I want to work on. So I'm lucky enough that I get to do that. So um, you talk about, you said a couple of times that there's just so many things that excite you and that there are things, obviously there are things you're working on you can't really share with us yet. And I understand that, but um, what is it like, I guess, for you on a day-to-day basis? You said what the things that get you out of bed and get you moving. It's like when you go into your lab or your, wherever you're working at that moment, um, what's the day like? Mostly I spend it in front of my computer. Okay. <laughs> mm. I have an awesome, awesome lab tech, and she does all the hard work. Give her credit. Um, but... Somebody said to me once that they thought what I did was irrelevant because we don't have dinosaurs today. So I have spent most of my career trying to find the relevance of the ancient past in today's world. And that's what gets me excited. It's these animals dominated the terrestrial landscapes for 150 million years. Humans in their present form 20, 30,000, 100,000 max. Right. 200,000, I guess, is maybe the latest data. So orders of magnitude longer, they were incredibly diverse, not only in their, in their shape, but also in the ec- ecological niches they evolved to fill in their molecular structure, in their histology. What's the relevance? And so one of my favorite examples is sauropods. So sauropods are the big, huge, long-necked dinosaurs that could get up to 80 tons and be half a football field or more in length. Wow. Why don't we have such organisms today? Sauropods were about the size of 12 elephants. We Elephants are the biggest animal we have. They are warm-blooded, just as an aside. But hmm. what, what were sauropods doing? Then you add on to that that sauropods were obligate vegetarians. And plants today are notoriously low in nutrition. Were they that low in nutrition back then? Or did they have super plants? Which might sound kind of weird, but plants have a lot more protein when growing, grown in the high CO2 environment. And we know the environment was high in CO2 back then. But then you got this problem of you've got a 40-foot neck, and a mouth that is about the size of your skull. How do you get enough plant material in that mouth and down that throat to be nutritious? And when it hits the stomach, what happens? Did they have a microbial consortium that allowed them to access those proteins in a way that animals today cannot? We know that sauropod dinosaurs, we have have embryos, we have eggs. They grew from a maybe 18-inch embryo or hatchling to that size in about Hmm. 20 years. We don't have an organism today with that metabolic rate that would allow that. But what if the food was different back then? Or what if the microbes were different back then? How would we use that in today's world? 
So that's kind of how my brain works. I don't know if there's ever an answer for that, but I look at dinosaurs and how diverse they were and how good they were at what they did. Why, for example, the fastest modern animals today are all four-legged. Look at the cheetah, look at deer, look at horses. Mm -hmm. The fastest dinosaurs that could run based upon biomechanics equally fast were all two-legged. Why? Huh. What's what's different? Why was two-legged more efficient if you're a dinosaur and four-legged is more efficient if you're a mammal? Is that an accident or is there something hidden deep in there that's trying to tell us something? I never thought of it like that. are hugely relevant to today's world and our questions. And I just wish there were more people working on them, to be honest, because I think they make make a lot of difference for our future. Wow. So before we were recording, you said that you can turn any subject to, to dinosaurs. <laughs> and well, I, I wasn't sure how you would do how it. I do that. World hunger? <laughs> dinosaurs. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You were you were serious. You can Wow, I super plants. That's But I mean those are all oh. fascinating questions. And again, you know, I've always been very interested in learning more about dinosaurs and geologic time and mm-hmm. and I just those are just questions that, you know, even as simple as what was the plant, what were the plants like to be able to sustain sauropods? I, it never even occurred to me to think of it like that. They had to <laughs> eat something. Yeah. <laughs> and we yeah. know, we know yeah. from everything from looking at their teeth and their jaw mechanics, they were plant eaters. Mm-hmm. But elephants are pretty much eating every waking moment to sustain their mass. And it's much, much, much less than a sauropod. So how did that work? Hmm. I mean, dinosaurs had advantages over mammals. And I know because we're mammals, we think that's heresy. But dinosaurs were <laughs> really good at what they did. So what are some other advantages that they had over um, mammals? Well, they were the no, they weren't the first organisms to fly, but they're still around and they're still flying. So mm-hmm. every lineage developed the ability to fly. Insects fly. Um, birds fly, bats fly, so mammals, um, you know, pretty much everybody can fly. Pterosaurs were archosaurs and they flew. Why? Are there flying marsupials? No, but marsupials are mammals and mammals fly. There you go. But what would drive the origin of flight and what do you need to have to sort of allow you to take advantage. Well, one thing you have to have to fly is an elevated metabolic rate. So can we look at the fossil record and see when in organisms related to modern birds, did they begin to show signs of an elevated metabolism? Because that had to precede flight. And they just, all these different animal groups just independently got there through different ways yeah that's that's what the data say so far yeah so there's a really really big important driver for flight since everybody figured out how to fly and they did it very differently what is the driver for flight 
And why is it so consistent across organisms? They all get there. They just do it very, very differently. A flying mammal and a flying bird are very different in how they got there from the molecular level on. Those are important questions. We can't, I mean, one of the things you hear today, and I'm going to wax political for a little bit, is, oh, biodiversity, biodiversity is failing. Well, how do you know? How do you know it's failing if you don't know what it was? And dinosaurs were about as diverse of a group of animals as could possibly be. And I think they put our present biodiversity to shame. If we don't look at what was in the past, all of our policy and all of everything else is going to be off. And that scares me, Hmm. to be honest. Hmm. Well, what percentage of of dinosaur species do you think we have, we even know about? I have no idea because that's not what I do. But I think (laughs) probably if you look in the literature, maybe estimates are we know about perhaps 10 to 20 percent of the dinosaurs that lived over time. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't even know all the species alive now. No, we don't. I mean, modern modern critters including microbes that are around, that are still alive, that still signal that we can measure and test, maybe 10%. Yeah, that's just so fascinating. Yeah, and so when you make plans to change something fundamental and you look at the last 8,000 years of data, you're going to get it wrong. And that scares me. Dinosaurs are important (laughs) and they're necessary to policy today going forward in the future. I believe that with all my heart and that's what keeps me going. I was, uh, that was the one topic that I wasn't sure you were going to be able to connect to dinosaurs (laughs) was politics. And, uh, and yet here we are. (laughs) (laughs) So well done, Mary. (laughs) I have a lot of sleepless nights where I think about my critters and I think this is weird. You know, hmm. why? And I, I think those things are important questions to ask. Yeah. They may not have yeah. any relevance, but they might have a lot. And remember yeah. that dinosaurs did not live by themselves. What about the plants? What about the microbes? What were they doing in a dinosaur-driven world? And how is that important for today's world? I think it's really, really, really important I don't want to work on plants or bacteria because that's not what I do, but I think it's really important <laughs> that somebody does it. Right. Mm. It could yeah. make all the difference in the world for our future. I mean, the, the way I see it is that we have 4.6 billion years of data. It's just sitting there in the ground waiting to be discovered, recorded, and analyzed. The experiments have already been run. The data are there. We need more workers. So major in paleontology. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is a totally off off topic. But if if one of our listeners were to be out, let's say, uh, digging a foundation for something and come across some some fossil of some kind in their yard, um, uh, what what? Are they required to 
call the authorities and, and give that to someone else? Um, they're not required to, but I would highly advise it because the more specimens we have, the clearer our picture of the past. Um, mm. There's a, a lot of traffic in paleontological artifacts. People, you could go on eBay and try to find some that you could buy. I think that's <laughs> it. We live so far in a free country. And you, if you find mm. it on your land, you're able to do that. And lots mm -hmm. of people do. But it's a loss to science. Amateurs don't particularly pay attention to the things that professionals do with respect to the environment these things are buried in. And so a lot of data is lost just by the fact that they're not collected the way we would. And then, um, you know, it's really cool if you can buy a T-Rex head and put it on display in your living room. <laughs> but that's not going to help advance the science at all. So um, if you find a fossil on federal land here in the United States, you are sort of required not to sell it, particularly a vertebrate fossil. Mm. Um, and I would advise calling your local paleontologist if it's on federal lands. But I think everybody, this is, dinosaurs did not obey state boundaries or country boundaries, national boundaries. And so I think their remains are there for all of us to learn from. And I don't mm -hmm. want to be part of seeing them end up unavailable for study or collected improperly. So half my questions can't get answered. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So all of our listeners who are out in... Colorado and Utah and all of those wonderfully fertile Mesozoic places. Uh, make sure you're doing this right. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, here in Pennsylvania, we're just uh, aquatic Devonian. So there's just a lot of shells and things like that. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> if you talk to my colleague at Rowan University, they do have some amazing vertebrate fossil sites that happen to be right at the boundary between the end of the Cretaceous and the beginning of the Paleocene. Yeah, in New Jersey. I know that the hadrosaur yeah. was discovered New Jersey, in, no, in New in Jersey. Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. Really? In Philly? Yeah, in Philly. Look mm. it up. Ken Lacavera. Well, where I am here in Pottstown, <laughs> yes. we, have, are, we have some... Which brings yeah, up, we have some Jurassic footprints. Um, it brings up the importance of knowing where you are in time and space before you go out looking. Mm. Because if I want to find a T-Rex, I'm not going to look for it in North Carolina where my job is. I'm not going to look for it in Nebraska. But in Montana, in Canada, in Colorado, in North Dakota, yeah, I might find a T-Rex. Know where you are in time and know where you are in space. That's the first step. Yeah. I'll, I'll promote my, uh, my favorite geology app again. Yes. Uh, the Rocked app. R-O-C-K apostrophe D. That will give you um, geological survey maps overlaid on where you are and will let you know which fossils and what kinds have been found in your region as well. Cool. Um, so you know w where you are and, and what you might find if you find yourself in an interesting road cut somewhere. Mm -hmm. They don't sponsor this podcast, though they could. They could. <laughs> them and this, the, the, the people behind the Seek app. Yeah. 
Well, and a they lot definitely of it could. Too, it's training your eye. Because I remember when I was first getting started in this field, I studied under Jack Corner, and he would talk about bringing his colleagues who were professional paleontologists out in the field, and they would walk right over a dinosaur bone, and he'd come along <laughs> behind them and pick it up. And a lot of it is, you know, every time I go into a new field area, I have to retrain my eyes and hmm. figure out what to look for because it's different and you miss stuff. So Interesting. It's really interesting when I take students out in the field for the first time, which I haven't done since COVID, but just watching them walk over stuff that is right there in plain sight as far as I'm concerned, and they their eyes are not trained to see it. Hmm. Oh, I love that so much. That is, again, that'll preach. When do you, you said you haven't done that since COVID taking them out in the field. Do you anticipate being able to do that again soon or? I sure hope so. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I realize too, though, that I have no sense of direction at all. So I always <laughs> go out in the field with other people so I don't lose my graduate students. <laughs> um, and so I partner with, um, mostly with the Museum of the Rockies in Montana because that's where I'm from and that's where my heart still lives. And um, it's really, we've got some great sites and we did go out in the field and found some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. But we're still trying to work, so. Uh, cool. Yeah. Well, so as we kind of get near the end, uh, a question we've been asking a lot of our guests lately is, uh, what do you wish that everyone knew? That's not how I would have ended this interview, so I wasn't prepared for that question. What do I wish everyone knew? I wish everyone would ask questions, all kinds of questions. And I wish that people would be disciplined enough to look at both sides of every issue. I tell my students, no matter what you observe, there are always, always, always at least two possible explanations and usually 10 or 12. Science progresses by ruling those out one at a time. Mm -hmm. And what's left standing is what you go with until the next bit of data comes in. That's the process. I wish more people applied that not only to scientific questions, but to every question in this world. I mean, you think about your dealings with a friend. You have a perspective. They have a perspective. Right. And which one's right and which one's wrong or which one, that's not even the right question. Which one has the most data to back it up? That's mm. the question. Yeah. Learn to ask good questions. Brilliant. Yeah. I love that. And that, we, don't, we don't teach that. We don't teach critical thinking anymore because somebody might be offended. <laughs> and if you do critical thinking and apply it, somebody might be wrong. And that would offend someone. But that's not how the world <laughs> works. There is a right. There is a wrong. Don't be afraid of that. Mhm. One of the things I, you know, I teach pre-service elementary teachers um, how to teach science primarily, and so that's some of the stuff I really focus on. Is you know, we have this idea with teachers that teachers are supposed to always know the answer, mm-hmm. and that you know, it's you can't. It's not good for a teacher to say, "I, I don't know." And what I try to work with them is that. You know, with teaching and in science, it, it's okay to say, I don't know. Oh, yeah. And that we're trying to find, let's see if we can find this out together or 
That's a great question. And um, to kind of admit when they don't know something and to be okay with it. What data would they need to answer that question so they can design their own experiments? Yep. There's a really good book out there that's no longer in print for elementary school teachers. It's called The Big Beast Book. And it gives you all kinds of lessons that you can do to answer questions like who lived with the dinosaurs? There's a, a really fun one in there called Geology You Can Eat. And it, it <laughs> talks about geological concepts as it relates to dinosaurs, which sedimentary layers are older, hmm. which are younger. How do these get transposed? Um, so for the elementary teachers that I work with or have in the past, I really recommend that book. Because having lesson plans that can illustrate this by getting your hands dirty is really, mm-hmm. really important. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Well, thank you for giving us all of these new interesting questions <laughs> yeah. and for uh, challenging us to reframe how we move through the world. Uh, this has been a truly fascinating and enjoyable hour for me. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks for putting up with my weird way of looking at the world. Oh, no, it's... I wish more people saw the world like you. <laughs> I think it, it's, it's a very beautiful, fascinating. beautiful world. It's amazing. And I just... Then we'll never understand it all, so there's always going to be something for people to do. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Oh, thank you.